on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. I'm sitting in for Richard tonight. If you're a regular listener, you know that Richard gets these migraines from time to time. And uh, I'll be sitting in for Richard tonight. He should be back tomorrow night for uh, our next moon show. So tonight we have a very interesting show for you on psychic archaeology and can it be a path forward to disclosure and we we have a first-time guest this uh stefan schwartz will be joining us shortly before we get to that we're going to check in with barbara honiger who as you know is um behind our fundraising project, the Alan Veen painting that is signed by some 20 of the most well-known astronauts and going to raffle that off to raise money and continue our research. So why don't we go ahead, uh, Keith, is Barbara with her? Why, why don't we bring Barbara on? I'm right here. Oh, you're right there, great. Do you want to tell the audience uh, briefly what what we've got going here with this fundraising project? I do. Thanks so much for asking. Um, the bottom line of this fundraising project and uh, I think we're losing Barbara. Bobby, you're breaking uh, up. What did you say, Keith? You're breaking up. We we didn't get every yeah. other word what you said. Where where I wasn't heard, but um, if you it's all about yeah. yeah, you're really breaking up, Barb. Um, we can't make out what you're saying. Uh, if you're on Wi-Fi, can you get closer to your router? Uh, all right. Hold on. I'm really very close to Keith. We might have to reconnect on Skype. So, uh, Keith, why don't you do that? I'll go ahead I'm and bring... I'm right by my router. Can you hear me now? Oh, that's better, yes. Is that better? Okay. Yep. All right, the door was closed between me and the router, and my apologies for that. Um, okay, so I'll start over again. Um, we have a very exciting fundraising drive for Richard Hoagland and the other side of midnight for all of the projects that are so important to get done. And uh, if you go to my item for tonight, I just have one for tonight. Well, let's uh, tell the people how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com. 
That's our homepage. And you scroll down and click on tonight's banner, the Psy Archaeology. Right. And that takes you to the show page. And on the show page, you'll find fast links to Barbara's items, my items, and Stefan's items, as well as our bios. Right. <clears throat> okay. But there's um there's an easier way every day, you know, 24/7, 365 and a quarter days a year, a year to get to the same information, and that is just to go to the homepage for the other side of midnight, the other side of midnight.com, scroll down just a little bit, not far, and you will see the same information uh, as to how to donate to the other side of midnight and all the exciting. Um, programs that Richard Hoagland is, um, has initiated. And uh, the bottom line of this fundraising campaign is that <clears throat> I uh, got the idea, gosh, it's quite a few months ago now, time flies, that I got the idea um, to go and see if there was an important um, available uh, print. I couldn't afford a an actual painting, and there are very few of them left, by Alan Bean, um, who was, of course, uh, an astronaut as well as a great space artist. And I found a great one. It's called Reaching for the Stars, and you should be able to see it if you've, if you've gone down to my items. And then I believe if you click on the uh, thumbnail of the image that it will get larger. Uh, it should, but maybe it, maybe it won't. But the exciting thing about this print, which we're basically auctioning, and I'll explain briefly how the auction works. Um, around the frame, the inside frame of the print, are 23 or 24 actual signatures, not just images of signatures, but actual signatures of 23 or 24 NASA astronauts, including, of course, Alan Bean. So, and uh, if you go to my items, and you're all, or you're already there, you go to the Alan Bean uh, fundraising drive on the homepage, um, you will see the names of all of the astronauts whose actual signatures are around, around the actual print of his painting called Reaching for the Stars, uh, which is, as I recall, it's of himself, um, Reaching for a Star. <clears throat> so, how it works is um, there is a goal for the fundraising drive. Richard has put it at $100,000, which personally I think is too high. Um, but nevertheless, that's what he wants to do for now. He could change that in the future. But the bottom line is, whatever the ultimate final goal of the fundraising drive is, uh, if you go and donate, uh, when the goal is reached, the final goal, and again, it could change, Maybe not, maybe, maybe so in the future. Once that final goal is reached, whatever it is, whoever has given the most to the fundraising drive will get this incredible print. So um, it's really not about getting the print. That's just kind of the cherry on the top uh, of the cake, if you will. It's really about supporting the other side of midnight and the important goals um, of the other side of midnight and Richard Hoagland and all of us here who are regulars on the show and all of you listeners. So I encourage you 
please donate as much as you can. Richard needs it. The other side of midnight needs it. Right now, he really needs $1,000 to repair the Accutron because that's what the repair company is telling him it costs. And he needs to get that thing repaired ASAP because he is trying to get it in time to Maria Wheatley so that she will have it repaired and functioning at on the Giza Plateau with the Pyramid and the Sphinx and all of the other amazing monuments there in by Cairo, Egypt, at the end of March. She's only going to be there, I think, the 29th and 30th or 31st of March. So please donate as generously as you can right now so that he can, at a very minimum, get that Accutron uh, repaired like this week. Okay, thanks, everybody. And I'd like to see the Accutron make its way to Arches Park if uh, I can get some volunteers to go there and um, I can fund them with, uh, some drones and travel expenses and hotel and so forth and go there and send the drones into these hidden entrances um, and use the Accutron to measure the hyperdimensional fields in Park Ave and Delicate Arch and so on. So with that said, uh, why don't we bring on our main guest for tonight? He's a first-time guest and we're we're thrilled to have him on the show. Uh, Stephen A. Schwartz is a distinguished associated scholar for the California Institute of Human Science, consulting faculty of Saybrook University, and a Bial Foundation fellow. He's an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, columnist for the journal Explore, and editor of the daily web publication, theschwartzreport.net in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post. His other academic and research appointments include Senior Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing of the Samueli Institute, Founder and Research Director of the Mobius Laboratory, Director of Research of the Rhine Research Center, excuse me, and Senior Fellow of the Philosophical Research Society. Government appointments include Special Assistant for Research and Analysis to the Chief of Naval Operations, Consultant to the Oceanographer of the Navy. He's also been Editorial Staff Member of National Geographic, Associate Editor of Sea Power, and Staff Reporter and Feature Writer for the Daily Press and the Times-Herald. For 40 years, he has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of space and time. Mr. Schwartz is part of the small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research, along with uh, Russell Targ, who we've had on the show a few times, and uh, Hal Putoff and some of the other folks. And Stefan is also the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. Using remote viewing, he discovered Cleopatra's Palace, Mark Antony's Timonium, ruins of the Lighthouse of Pharaohs, and sunken ships along the California coast and in the Bahamas. He also uses remote viewing to examine the future. And you can read more about Stephen. Uh, We have his bio there, and you can also go to his website where there's lots of fascinating information there for you. 
So, Stephen, with that, uh, welcome to the other side of midnight. Happy to join you. Now, let's uh, before we get into the meat of things, why don't we go back and talk about your beginnings? Um, you know, like with Russell Targ, he was doing his magic as a teenager, and he had the impression he was picking up. Um, mind images from the audience and that kind of led him to these consciousness studies and now was in your upbringing was there any kind of moment like that or was there an aspect of your early life that sort of heralded or, or led you to what would become your life career yes i woke up when i was 24 i um was at a party that Truman Capote gave on Fire Island, and um, I was coming down the hall from going to the bathroom, and I looked in a mirror and very spontaneously said to myself, without any really thought to it, you are becoming an unattractive person because your values are not right. And I didn't even know what that meant, but it was kind of scary, and I left the party slept on the beach, went back to New York, where I was working as a screenwriter for Screen Gems, and got in my car and drove back to Virginia, where I'm from, to my family's farm, and was the only time in my life I've ever been depressed. And I, because I just didn't know what was wrong, and I didn't know what to do. I'd been quite successful at the things that I'd done, and I seemed to be doing all the things you were supposed to do. And uh, clearly, however, something wasn't right. And one day I was sitting on the uh, screen porch of my family's property down in Tidewater, Virginia. And I looked up and there was a couple, middle-aged couple, walking in the gardens. This was a property that had 17 acres of gardens. And there was this couple dressed as if they were New Yorkers. He had on a gray double-breasted suit. and She had on this rather handsome linen dress. And they didn't look like people, there weren't anybody I knew, but they weren't dressed like anybody that you would see in rural Virginia. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they saw me looking at them, and they came over to the porch, and I opened the door, and the woman came in, and and uh, instead of introducing herself, which is what you would expect, the first thing she said to me was, do you believe in reincarnation? Hmm. And I never thought about it. I grew up in a family that had no interest whatever in religion. My parents, uh, my father was a physician, an anesthesiologist. My mother was a surgical nurse. They cared about consciousness and science, medicine. So I didn't, I just didn't know anything about it. And I said to her, I don't know, uh, I don't know anything about it, but it does seem kind of symmetrical. And then I said to her, but wait, you know, who are you? Why are you here? And she said to me, I'm here because I had a dream last night that told me to come up here and introduce you to Edgar Casey. Do you know who Edgar Casey is? <laughs> yes, and I do. I said, no, I have no idea who Edgar Casey is. And, and she, 
uh, I said, but how could you possibly know how to get here? We were, we, our property, a couple hundred acres was at the end of a 10 mile school bus road and our lane was a mile long. And I said, how could you possibly get here? And she said, well, in the dream, I saw where to turn and I wrote it down and uh, we just drove it. And she said, um, I'd like to introduce you to Edgar Casey and, and give me your telephone number. And I gave her my card and she said to me, uh, would you like to meet Thomas Jefferson? And I'd gone to the University of Virginia. I was an Eccles scholar at the University of Virginia. And I said, yes, is he back? And she said, yes, he is. And just about that time, a car drove down the lane with a young couple in it. And she said, we'll be in touch. And she left and got in the car and drove away. And I thought to myself, what in the world just happened? But about a week later, I got a call, and it was a guy. He said his name was Thomas Jefferson Davis. And um, he invited me down for the weekend, gave me the address, and so I said, okay. And so I got in the car and, and drove down to Virginia Beach, which is about two hours south of, of Gloucester County, which is where I was. And uh, I got to the address, and there was a young man who was up on a ladder hanging a sign for what was a sandal shop and, and sort of hippie clothes. This is 1964, I guess. And I said to him, I'm looking for T.J. Davis. And she said, well, she's not here but uh, Joan is here, and she'll take you up to the ARE. And around the corner came this really quite lovely woman, beautiful lavender eyes. And she said, I'm supposed to take you up to the ARE. Do you know what that is? I said, no. She said, that's the uh, organization that studies Edgar Casey." And I said, I don't have any idea who Edgar Casey is. So we got in my car, and we drove up. Uh, Virginia Beach up Atlantic Boulevard and I got out and and uh, she took me into the building into what was the library and there was a whole wall of these green loose leaf notebooks and she said these are the readings and she explained to me what her understanding of a reading was and at random I just reached for one of the books and pulled it down and opened it up and I can tell you that when people tell you your hair can stand on end, they're not lying. I opened this up, and it was a reading given in 1936 for a woman, and he said that she had been a member of the Essene community <coughs> at Kerbet Qumran, and that she'd been a teacher of astrology. Again, she gave, he gave this reading in 1936, and I read this, and I mean, I was just stunned is the only word I can use because before I was drafted and went into the army uh, when I was working at Geographic the last story that I had been working on was about uh, the Essene community and uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls particularly hmm. and I knew that in 1936 there was not a person alive 
who knew that there was an Essene community at Kerbet Qumran. No one knew that women were involved with the Essenes. Josephus, who was the principal authority, said it was a schismatic order of Jewish monks. And no one had any knowledge that they were at all interested in astrology. But all of that is true. But it wasn't discovered until 11 years after he gave the reading in 1947, when a young tribes, a Bedouin tribes boy was chucking rocks into a cave and he heard it go thunk. And he went down into the cave and found the, the uh, amphora or urns which contained the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they got them, and the archaeologists came, and they excavated the site, and they found female skeletons. And the scrolls themselves are obsessed with astrology, which nobody knew. So I thought to myself, where could this guy have gotten this information? I mean, nobody knew it, and I knew that for sure. So how could he possibly know? And 1936, something that wouldn't be discovered in 1947. And this went against everything you've been taught in school and in life. Well, it, it didn't go against. I mean, it, yes, but um, I mean, first yes. of all, um, it was inconsistent, let's put it that way, mm. with what we knew about the Essene community. And so I got... I got very interested and I called up and said to the farm, oh, it's going to take me a little more than a weekend. And it eventually took me about six years. And I decided uh, the next day that, that I was going to read all of the readings from the first one to the last one. And I met Gladys Davis, who was uh, Hugh, uh, Edgar Casey's secretary and archivist and i told her what i wanted to do and she's nobody's ever done that in fact as far as i know i'm the only person who's ever done it and she said i said can you help me and she said oh yes i'm fascinated that you're that interested yes i will help you and so i set out to read all the readings which i did and i read all the you know the other sort of consciousness people from the 19th century, Alice Bailey, Rudolf Steiner, uh, Blavatsky, uh, Leadbeater. Uh, yeah, Leadbeater, all of that. And then about 1967, uh, I decided I needed to read what science had to say about what I now understood as consciousness and the idea that there was an aspect of consciousness that was independent of space-time, that all consciousness was not physiologically based. So I started reading all of the parapsychological uh, journals, as well as many books, and I read every journal that had been published from the first one up to the present day, at that time, 67. And in 68, I began doing experiments. And I, I built a... a uh, I, I created a grid in my back garden in Virginia Beach where I'd moved, and uh, I would bury mason jars with things in them or 35-millimeter canister, film canisters with things in them, and I made a mimeograph of the, the, the outline of the grid, and I would ask people all over the world that I knew 
uh, I want you to, I'd send him a copy of that, and then I would say, I would like you to locate which grid contains the, the thing that I've buried. Uh, so can you locate it, and can you tell me, uh, describe it for me? And do I you know I, anyone else that was doing this work? Um, no, no. No, but, I, but the oldest remote viewing, well, I'll let me finish this part of it. Anyway, I discovered people could do it, and they were right about 70% of the time. And that got me very interested, and because I had an interest in, and had come out of an anthropological background, in, in, among other things, um, I started reading in the archaeological literature because it occurred to me that one of the most rigorous things I could do would be to locate archaeological sites that were known to exist, but everybody agreed they didn't know where they were or what you would find if you got there. So it would be a pure triple-blind experiment, which is what I cared about. I wanted something that was absolutely impeccable and that could not be refuted uh, or couldn't be argued, you know, that it was just a, a statistical outcome. And if you'd done the statistics differently, you wouldn't have gotten that result and all that kind of stuff. Because if someone tells you where to go to find something and describes what you're going to find when you get there, and you can prove that not a single soul on the earth knew that, and you can create an unimpeachable chronology, which is what I did, um, then you move past statistics and you can begin talking about non-local consciousness, not only as a reality, but you can begin to look at how does it operate, which is what interested me. Most research that's, that's uh, done, uh, had been done up to that time in parapsychology was to prove does it exist? And then that's still going on, by the way. But I, did, well, I had spent all that time reading the Casey material and all the parapsychology journals and all the rest of it, and, and I didn't have any doubt about the reality of it. What I wanted to know was, how does it work? How can you make it work better? Can you do anything of practical utility with it? And what is it telling us about being a human being in the matrix of consciousness? So those were the questions that I had, not is it real? And uh, I've been following that ever since. Mm, that's quite the beginning. Now, at that time, the mainstream science was not much into the non-local consciousness. Would you agree with that? Well, uh, if you look at if you look at history, the the uh, uh, the reason that Consciousness and science split was a result of the of the Council of Trent uh, between 1545 and 1563. The Roman Curia, the Roman Catholic Curia, had a series of 25 meetings, and science was really just beginning at that point. And they issued an edict in which they said things which have to do with spirit read consciousness. That's our world. And things that have to do with physical reality, that's the world of you new guys in science. And as long as you stay in your world and don't come into our world, then everything's fine. If you come into our world and we can get our hands on you, we're going to torture you and kill you. 
and and that split consciousness from science not for everybody but for most people and that went on until the 19th century when uh, a number of things occurred and parapsychology psychology psychiatry uh, anthropology they all begin in a, within about a 50-year period of each other and they began to get interested in in, in consciousness you're in Virginia. You're you're on the beach there. You're burying these things, and you're contacting people. How did you pick people? How did you find these people? This is before the internet, obviously, and things were very different back then. So, how did you go about organizing this project where you contact people? Like, how did you get people's names and how did that come about? That must have been a very trying experiment. No, not at all. They were just people I knew. Oh. They were just people I knew who I thought might be interested in doing it. And, I mean, we can talk when we get back from your break. We can talk about who can do this. The oldest recorded remote viewing is in the 46th chapter of Herodotus's Histories of the World from the 5th century BCE. And it's done exactly as we would do it today. And I had read that when I was in university, so I, I hadn't understood it at the time, but as I thought about it, I realized that that was the oldest remote viewing on record. In those days, I called it distant viewing. That was the Oracle of Delphi? Yes, it was the Oracle of Delphi. All right, you're on the other side of midnight.com. We'll be right back after this short break. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight.com. I'm Jonathan Womack sitting in for Richard Hoagland. And we're talking with Stefan Schwartz, who's one of the handful of founders of remote viewing. And you were just about to tell us about the early remote viewing of, uh, of Delphi, Stefan. Do you want to go ahead with that? Well, I mean, the story, it's in, as I said, in the 46th chapter of Herodotus, uh, histories of the world. Herodotus is generally recognized as the father of history, of recording history. Uh, he's the first historian, and he tells this story of Croesus, who we think of as rich as Croesus, and the reason we do that is because he was the first person, first monarch to, to coin uh, money. And he was attacked by uh, uh, or was was told he was going to be attacked by Darius, the king of the Persians, uh, which was a much bigger empire. Uh, he was the king of the Lydians. Lydia, what was Lydia, is now part of Turkey. And so he wasn't quite sure what to do. So he decided that he would go to the seven oracles of of the ancient Greek world. There is a long tradition of uh, oraculars, oracular temples in which people channel higher consciousness. And in the Greek world, there were seven of them. And the, he assembled seven teams, seven embassies, uh, teams of people, and he told them that they were to go to the each one to a particular oracle and that they were waiting they were to wait until the hundredth day and on the hundredth day they were to go into the oracle and ask the oracle what is Croesus son of Aleates king of the Lydians doing today and um, and so that didn't make any sense to them but off they went and the only answer we know is the or is the answer from the Delphi oracles, the Pythonesses they were called, a young women 
who were put in a kind of hanging in a kind of tripod on a seat over a over a, a, a crack in the earth from which hydrocarbons that produced uh, psychedelic experiences uh, came up and so on the hundredth day they went in as they were told to do and before they could even ask their question the pythonist said um, I can count the, the sands of time that is the hundred days and I see the great ocean that is the ocean that they had they came on a ship to where Delphi was and I, I see a, a bronze urn and a bronze lid uh, hanging from a tripod over a fire and I see a, a, a tortoise and, and I think let's see a hare no wait a minute is that right yes I think so anyway I, I see these things being carved up and thrown into this boiling urn of water and it didn't make any sense to them at all but they wrote it all down as they had been told to do and they all went back and when they all got back uh, Croesus brought them in the, the, the seven teams and when the Delphi team spoke he got down and bowed and gave obeisance because they were the ones who were correct Croesus thinking about this today we by the way would call this an outbound experiment uh, Croesus thinking well I need to do something that you couldn't predict and so he had a big bronze uh, cauldron brought into his courtyard and a fire built under it and hang, and a bronze lid and he cut up these things these animals and and um, threw them into the fire into the urn uh, uh, or the cauldron because he thought well if they said well Croesus is sitting on his throne you know giving orders well he's a king that's what kings would be doing but nobody would expect him to be doing what he was actually doing and so they recorded it and Herodotus recorded it and that's how we know about it and as I say it is the oldest recorded non-local perception experiment in history that well, we know ironic because since then we seem to have drawn further away at least you know science and metaphysics have seemed to uh, there are separate things in most people's minds when in reality they're not and they seem to understand that back in the day with Herodotus they did I told you that the, the key to the split is the Council of Trent 1545 to 1563 uh, mm. and and that I mean they killed a whole bunch of people because the Inquisition if, if you started talking about what they called spirit today we'd call consciousness and they could get hold of you they would torture you or burn you alive and so science which was just beginning anyway had so much to focus on that um, it just that, that, that studying consciousness just wasn't a big issue that that attracted them there were so many other things that you could measure very specifically and it's not that there were no people interested uh, Newton for instance not only speaks about gravity but he also was very interested in alchemy the why he was interested in those two things we don't know because it didn't leave a record but in any case people have been doing non-local perception work in the 11th century in Germany for instance 
most of the um, metals that were mined were found using dowsing. And dowsing is just a form of remote viewing, a, a kind of binary remote viewing uh, using a stick, mm. or a cleft stick. Anyway, so it has always been a part of every culture. It just hasn't been a main part of science until, as I said, end of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, when it became obvious that something was going on and a small group of scientists, it certainly is not the dominant group, materialism, physicalism is the dominant paradigm, but increasingly it was clear that that, that paradigm didn't answer all the questions. And so researchers began to look at the issue. Um, when I uh, got into it, as I said, in the 60s, the two of the big discussions going on were, is this an electromagnetic phenomena? And a lot of people thought it were, thought they were. That is, that there was a sender and a receiver and a signal, and it was kind of like a walkie-talkie. And a lot of people wrote about that, and uh, researchers began to explore that. Um, and by the early 70s, by the late 60s, early 70s, 69, 70, I was, I was asked to become the special assistant to the chief of naval operations. And I uh, uh, accepted that job. I was part of the small team that transformed the American military from an elitist conscription organization that was strongly white supremacy to an all-volunteer meritocracy that was racially and gender neutral. I'm quite proud of being involved with that. Hmm. But in addition, a, a, a friend of mine took over and became the head of the CIA, and he, he began to send me translations. I don't know how he got them. Translations of the work of a Russian researcher named Leonid Vasilyev. And Vasilyev asked a question that was the big burning question, is this electromagnetic? So he put people down into caves and put them down into uh, mine shafts. And he put them in Faraday cages. It's a kind of a device, a, a, a space that's been shielded from electromagnetic radiation. And, and he asked them to do non-local perception tasks, and they could do them just as well as when they were on the surface. So he gradually, very, he was a very meticulous researcher, he gradually got it down to only one part of the EM spectrum could possibly uh, be the source, uh, ELF, extreme low frequency, three to 300 hertz. But he went to Admiral Gorshkov, who was the father of the Soviet Blue Water Navy, and he asked him if he could put somebody aboard a submarine and do this experiment. And for whatever reason, I don't know, because he never recorded it, uh, Admiral Gorshkov wouldn't do it. And so he wrote all this up in a series of papers, which were sent to the uh, Central Committee, because this was all being done quite secretly. And I got copies of it, as I said, and I looked at that. So I went to Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the American nuclear navy and the nuclear submarines 
and I asked him if he would let me do the experiment. And he thought about it for a while. And uh, he came back to me about a week later and said, no, I don't think I'm going to do this because it will leak out. The media will find out about it. And there'll be a lot of discussion about it. And people will start talking about the nuclear subs, which have the ballistic missiles, uh, which most people don't even know exist. And most Americans have no idea there's a, a whole fleet of nuclear-powered submarines going around the world that contain nuclear missiles. And that's part of what's called the triad, defense triad. So he said, I just, I, it'll just get a lot of publicity and we don't need it. I don't want it. So I didn't think it would ever happen. But um, uh, several years later, after I left government to go off and do research, uh, I decided, as I said earlier, that that archaeology was very attractive to me because if you could find something that everybody knew existed or if they didn't know it existed, you could locate it and then describe what you'd find when you went there. Then you had an unimpeachable experiment. So I was quite attracted to that and um, decided that's I would I would use archaeology. Uh, I build a protocol about how to do it, and I created what has come to be known as the Mobius Consensus Protocol. But anyway, I got offered, I went out to Arizona to write The Secret Vaults of Time, which is a book about all of the use of non-local perception prior to my getting involved. And so it covers all of this work that was done in mean, a number of very interesting Frederick Bly Bonds, reconstruction of Glastonbury Cathedral, the discovery of the great Olmec head by Clarence Wyant, uh, Bronze Age sites that were found. Anyway, so I, I went out to Arizona to write this book, and I got offered a fellowship in Los Angeles at the Philosophical Research, and I went out, and while I was out there, I stayed with a friend of mine who had retired from the Navy and was the, had been the deputy director of, of uh, naval research. And he and another friend of mine, uh, Don Walsh and Don Keach, uh, uh, Walsh made the deepest dive in history, the deepest dive that will ever be made in the Marianas Trench and the Challenger Deep. And um, while we were having lunch one day, he said to me, you know, that crazy experiment you wanted to do with submarines? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I said, but you know, where are you going to get a submarine? And I told him about Rickover. And he said, well, as it happens, we have a submarine, a research submarine that's coming down here uh, early this summer. This was in the early fall or in the early spring, rather, that's coming down and we're willing to pay three days to let you do your experiment. And, and this was this Project Deep Quest? This is Project Deep Quest. And so, um, and I decided I would film it also so that there would be no question about what happened. I've always been extremely meticulous and therefore have never been attacked as so many researchers have uh, because I designed my experiments so that if you want to take me on, basically what's going to happen is I'm going to humiliate you. And, um, and I've told several deniers that who thought they would take me on. But in any case, 
So I, he said, I'll do this experiment. And so I designed Project DeepQuest, which was an experiment. To the first part was to reach through the ocean to the bottom and locate a previously unknown wreck. Now, part of the reason for this was, as I said earlier, Vasiliev had eliminated everything but ELF. And a guy named Michael Persinger up in Laurentia University in Canada had published a paper in which he argued also that it was that uh, what we call non-local perception was electromagnetic in nature and involved ELF. Um, what he didn't know, because it was classified, but I did know, was that the Navy had spent about $125 million because they got interested in ELF as well as a way of communicating with the deep ocean submarines without bringing them to the surface. Because if they got even, even forget about surfacing, if they just got close to the surface, uh, the Soviet satellites would pick up the heat from the reactors, the nuclear reactors. So they wanted to keep the submarines submerged enough that they couldn't be detected by the satellites. And they had created a project called a project, the ELF project, then became Project Sanguine. And they had discovered two things. One, which Vasiliev didn't know because he was never able to do it. One was how deep you had to go. And two was, and equally important, in some ways more important, how much information you could transmit. And it turns out with ELF, uh, you, you can only transmit a little bit of information. I mean, like number, one, two, three, four. In fact, if you saw a movie called The Search for Red October, there's a scene where they get a transmission while they're submerged, and it's like one, two, three, four, and they have to go to a book and they open the book up, and one, two, three, four means target this city. And I had gotten the idea for what has come to be known as associated remote viewing. In 1973, I was writing a speech for Elmo Zumwalt, and he had asked me to provide some historical references in the speech I was writing. And I, among other things I came across, was the Battle of the Nile, the Battle of, of uh, Abukir Bay, and um, in that battle between Lord Nelson, the British commander, and Admiral Bourrier, the French commander, Nelson realized that when his, in order to attack the French fleet, he would have to string out his first line ships, 65 gun cannons, and that they would be so spread out that because when you fire cannons, black, black powder cannons, you create so much smoke that he wouldn't be able to communicate with the, the ships that were a distance away. So he came up with a solution. He developed a set of flags. So like a red flag with a white stripe meant tack left and a blue flag with a white dot meant tack right. And he had his frigates, that's like a destroyer, and, but in the sailing Navy, a frigate was a smaller ship. And he would send his frigates, this was his plan, he would send his frigates up and down the line of his ships, flying these flags, and in that way, he would be able to communicate this associative thing that I'm talking about. 
And I thought at the time, because I was, as I said, I was knowledgeable about the ELF issue that the Navy was looking at. And when they discovered you could only transmit a very little bit of information, I knew from the experiments that I'd already done that that in a remote viewing, you can get a lot more information than could possibly be explained by ELF. So my idea was, first of all, to see if people could all over the world could, if I sent them a map, could penetrate the, the seawater to the sea floor and describe a previously unknown wreck and describe what it would look like and where it would be and, and you know how it got there, all of that. And then what, the made you, Go ahead. what made you select Catalina Island as because the, that's where the submarine was. Okay. The submarine came from a company called Heiko, and Don Keach and Don Walsh had taken over the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies at the University of Southern California, and they had a facility on Catalina Island, and that's where this submarine came down to do its sea trials. So I was limited to where the submarine could go. It wasn't that big an area, but big enough. Um, in any case, uh, so I asked people all over the world to fill out the map, and they located a, a, a different places, but a group of them located the same place. And that's what I look for is consensus. Now, this was... Ingo Swan and Hella Hammond from well yes but they're only a piece of it that you 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 got two things mixed up okay so I, there were about seven people that were going to do it I did do it not we're going to did do it I also wanted to have an independent witness scientist who would attest to everything that was going on and I asked Ann Kale who was the one of the directors of the Jet Propulsion Lab satellite program. And I also decided to film it. And so I arranged to, to film it. I knew about films, how to do it. And um, so they located a ship. And at the last minute, I was going to ask Alan Vaughn and George McMullen to be the on-site people. But at the last minute, Alan came down with a very bad flu. And George had a co-worker who got, whose wife was pregnant and who had a premature delivery. And so he, the husband took off time and George could not take off time. He was a parts manager at a Chrysler dealership in Nanaimo, Canada. So at the last minute, I had just literally just met Ingo Swan and and, um, I really just gotten to know him and Ed May and uh, Hella Hammond. And so I, instead of having George and Alan, I asked Ingo and Hella if they would do it uh, to be the ones who were, while submerged, attempted to describe an outbound person. Now, now I, you had, just to be clear, these seven people were instructed to <clears throat> tap into their non-local consciousness and see if they could find any uh, previously unrecorded ships. So they basically, they drew a circle around a spot on a map. And then when you got, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the seven drawings from the seven people, you found that 
how many of them had drawn the same circle on the same uh, grid point on the maps? Did all seven of them or? No, no, no. Uh, four of them had, uh, they had picked a number of places, mm-hmm. but there was one place that several of them had agreed to. Mm. And so that was the one that I was targeted on. And so, yes, I sent them a map. What I do is I, I take a map, uh, I take the colors off, I make a blueprint out of it, really. I take off the title, the uh, names, uh, I take off the colors, and I, so it's just kind of blue and gray. And I sent those out as, in mail. And I, and I also had a series of questions which I put in sealed envelopes. And I asked them, first of all, to open the envelopes in order. And the first question was, locate a previously unknown wreck on the seafloor that is in, in this area of the map. That's what they did. And then I asked, please describe, question number two, please describe what I will find when I go to the place you have located. And so they give you all kinds of information. And um, so I gave that over to the deputy director of the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies, a guy named Brad Veek, and he made a master map. And we used the master map. And when we decided to, to do the archaeological part of the experiment, um, I had a surface ship go out and drop a pinger, uh, a kind of radio homing device that goes ping, 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 so that when we were submerged, we could only go to that one site. So we couldn't, you know, we'd stumble across something else. You know, that that was criticism. Oh, well, you went down and you just stumbled across something. Mm -hmm. The pinger was right over where the site was. And right at the end, uh, it described a Y-shaped object. They described, they said it was a wooden ship. It had gone down about uh, in the early uh, 20th century, 1906, 1907, that uh, it had um, had a, a kind of steam winch on the surf, on the deck that had exploded and set ship to the fire to the ship and that it caused the ship to sink and that we would find the winch and then the night before we did the experiment, Hella Hammond came back to me and said, I think you're going to find, a, and made a drawing of it, I think you're going to find a large granite block, five by six by seven. And that's wonderful stuff because that, the other thing I look for, in addition to consensus, is low a priori. So if you tell me I'm going to find a ship and it's going to have an anchor, well, of course it's a ship. Of course it has an anchor. But you tell me I'm going to find a large granite block that's five by six by seven. I don't expect to hear that. Yeah. So they, they had described for me what I would find. And we went out. And okay, we're going to have to hold it there, Stefan. Uh, let's pick up on that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. I'm your host tonight, Jonathan Womack. And we will return shortly.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. We're talking with Stefan Schwartz, and he's been telling us about this wonderful experiment in the 70s that he conducted off the coast of Catalina Island. So why don't you pick up, Stefan, where you left off before the break? Well, so to pick up this thing, uh, they located a particular wreck, and they described in great detail how long it was there, how it got there, what we would find if we went there. And, it, and so that was important relative to the ELF question because they obtained far more information than you would have been able to obtain via ELF. And, um, and they located something that was previously unknown. So nobody in the world knew it existed uh, or where it was. So we went down, and as I said, we dropped a radio homing device, a thing called a pinger, that puts out a little sound, ping, 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 and you home in on that, and we homed in on it, and there, immediately, we saw the winch, uh, we saw the Y-shaped object, and we saw uh, Hella's block, which was very dramatic. Yeah, I can so imagine. That was, that, was, that was part of the experiment. The other part of the experiment was, um, as I said, I, uh, Alan Vaughn and, and um, uh, George McMullen had not been able to do the experiment for the reasons I said. And, and so I had asked Hella and Ingo to be the remote viewers who went into the sub. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I ought to, in order to optimize my probability of success, I ought to let... Um, uh, uh, somebody that they know be the outbound person. And so the outbound person, I asked Russ Targ and Hal Putoff to be the outbound people. So we're down in Catalina in Southern California and they're 500 miles away up in Palo Alto. <clears throat> and I, we put first Hella and then Ingo in the submarine one at a time. So we'd surface, one would get out, the other one would get in, we'd submerge again. 
And they were able to describe in great detail, uh, both of them, exactly where Hal and Russ were. And that meant that, again, they could not, ELF could not be the explanation because they were down at a depth where that wouldn't work. And also the amount of information they obtained was way beyond what you would get with ELF. And uh, by the way, I made a film of this. You can go to my website, stephaneschwartz.com, and you can see it. And I got Leonard Nimoy, Dr. Spock, uh, from, from the Star Trek. I got him to, to narrate the film for me. And I also established um, the idea that you could use this associated remote viewing thing as a communications if electronic communications broke down, which was part of what I was interested in. Well, one thing I thought of when uh, I watched that video um, and when you know, Hella draws a picture of this sort of monolith granite uh, stone, I thought, boy, now that would be interesting to get a ping off of that as a psychic reading off of that to find out how long ago was it that that area was uh, not underwater because I'm guessing somebody had some sort of structure there. Who no, knows? Stone no, circle. no, 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 no. Uh, the ship, I later had the ship analyzed by a whole series of scientists in many different disciplines. The date that the remote viewers had given was correct. The large granite block was after San Francisco had the earthquake in 1906, they were shipping large blocks of granite up uh, from Mexico to uh, where they were quarried up to San Francisco where they were turned into steps and lintels and, you know, when they were rebuilding the city mm. after a large part of it had been destroyed. So this was that, and we found the winch. It was a, a kind of high-pressure winch that had exploded, just exactly as the remote viewers had said. And um, everything that they said turned out was, was checked by uh, the idea was the wreck completely unknown. I went to the Bureau of Land Management of the Marine Sites Board, and I got the head of that to look at it. And he said, we know of no wreck in this location of this type. And so every, I closed all the doors for criticism. And they, uh, also, I established, which was my original, this idea of associating something just as Lord Nelson had done, uh, associating a, a, a site that people remote viewed where Hal and Russ were, uh, could have been associated with a, a, uh, a directive so you could send out a message, for instance, even if you didn't have electronic capability. Anyhow, so about a week later, I, Linda Evans, who was then a well-known, uh, she was in a television series called Dallas, was giving a dinner party, and I was there. And as you can imagine, DeepQuest got a fair amount of, of media attention. 
became a television show on NBC. She asked me to explain just basically what I've been saying to you. And uh, sitting across from me was a, uh, a surgeon. And she turned to this guy who I didn't know. He was just sitting across from me. And she said, well, what do you think of this? And he said, I don't believe a word of it. Hmm. I think it was all just dumb luck, and which was you know, kind of insulting, but there you are. So she said to him, well, what would convince you? And he said, well, if I were repressed, I would say, if you could pick the winner of a horse race, that I would believe that because everybody knows you can't pick the winner of a horse race uh, before the race happens. So I thought about that and I thought, well, okay. So I created an associated remote viewing. I asked Hella and I asked, uh, because she was an experienced viewer, and I asked Nettie Pena, who was the camera woman who had filmed the Deep Quest, who had never done remote viewing, never heard of it even. So I wanted to see what a naive viewer and what a very experienced viewer could do. And so I, I picked seven targets, six targets, uh, each one representing one horse winning the race. So the fountain represented horse number one. Uh, the uh, children's zoo represented horse number two and so forth. And both viewers, both Nettie and uh, Hella, picked the uh, sixth horse of the sixth race at Hollywood Park. And on the appropriate night, we went there and we bet $2 and we won $14. And we were correct. And I told people about this, that you could predict and have a financial outcome. And that just made people crazy. <laughs> well, this is like Russell's experiment with the, the super, stock market. Yeah, yeah that, that's where it came from. So Russell and I, who are friends, I told him about this, and he went on and did the Silver Futures experiment, and I did an experiment predicting the Standard & Poor 500 index, and we turned $5,000 into $150,000, Russell made, I think it was 260000 Hal put off, wanted to make 26000 something about starting a Waldorf school, and he did that. So, yes, it immediately, nope. what immediately caught on with people was that associated remote viewing could be used to predict things that could give you a financial return. Now, what about the surgeon? Oh, well, I mean, we told him we won the race, and he said, well, uh, then I don't want to talk about it, basically. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. I never saw him again except to have a phone call with him. Anyhow, so that uh, created the ARV experiment. It answered the question, is non-local perception electromagnetic? No, it is not. It demonstrated you could like locate an archaeological site. And those were the three purposes for which I had done the experiment. As I said, I filmed it all and, and got Dr. Spock uh, to, uh, to do the, the uh, uh, narration. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I went on and did another archaeological experiment. And then 1978, 
And that was the, the, the deep quest experiment was in 1977. August. 1977. Let's just put this in perspective. So for about since 1964, now we're up to 1978 or so. In this relatively short period of time, you've had quite the transformation. You've done this deep dive. You're you're all in on this. This is like your life's work now. You found your path forward. And you're doing things that no one's done before. You're, you're breaking into new frontiers. And so this was a, a very uh, creative, um, transformational time for you, this kind of 10, 12-year period, right? Yeah. Uh, as I said, um, oh, and I need to correct. It's not Dr. Spock. It's Mr. Spock. I forgot about that. Um, Anyway, and Leonard, I, I, I met Leonard. He was interested in remote viewing, and I asked him to be the narrator for the show. Anyhow, doing in search of that at the time, I believe. That's right. In fact, I sold the, I sold the program to In Search of, ah. which was on NBC. And uh, anyhow, so yes, I mean, what I, I, you know, I walked away from a career in government. I was being, I, I had written four speeches for the president and I was being asked to come over to the White House and, and um, I was part of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology discussion group on innovation technology in the future. I was on the Smithsonian discussion group on innovation technology in the future. And I just walked away from all that because I got interested in consciousness. That's what interested me. And the nature of consciousness, and as I said, what is it telling us about who we humans are in the matrix of consciousness? Well, this might be a question for later, but have you ever done a life between life or past life kind of regression therapy session um, to find out what you might have been doing before this life? No, although I've, I've had several past life experiences mm. now in one of them I was a knight and in about the 15th century and in one of them I was a Viking uh, probably well it's hard to tell but maybe the 11th 12th century 15th century it's I mean it's hard to, for me to know mm -hmm. um, but no I've never done a regression therapy or anything like that mm -hmm. okay so you're now it's like 1978 you uh, carried out this very successful experiment off Catalina Island and you've connected with Russell and Hal Putoff and Hella and Ingo Swan and some of these folks and so now what's the next step where does it go from there? well we also did a project to locate the talking idol of Ixtral on Cozumel Island um, in Mexico, it was, uh, again, another one of these uh, uh, oracular temples where an individual in an altered state of consciousness would, would speak for the God. It's not them. It's the God. Uh, disassociation is very common in the history of non-local perception because people don't want to take responsibility for what they're saying. So it's not me speaking, it's the God speaking. 
anyway, so we located the t- talking idol of Ixchel. Um, but in uh, the end of, se- I don't know, maybe the sort of uh, spring of 78, I was approached by two historians, two women historians, who came to me and said, could you locate the tomb of Alexander the Great? And I said to him, well, I, I don't know, uh, but I could certainly try. Uh, do you have somebody that knows how to fund, uh, uh, somebody willing to fund this? Because these things are not cheap. Hmm. And they said, yes, we think we do. Have a couple of people. And um, I said, well, if you know, if you can get the funding and they're willing to do it at the level of, of rigor that I am willing to do it, uh, okay, we'll work it out. And so in 1979, we began the Alexandria Project. And uh, that was a project at 11 viewers. And um, we located the uh, same technique, the Mobius Consensus Protocol. Uh, I got a map of Alexandria, Egypt, uh, and the water the waters beyond it, beyond the shore, and uh, took all the colors off and all the names and everything off, turned it into a blueprint, sent it out to uh, 11 people. And how did you pick those 11 people? How did that come about? Well, I had, by that time, I had uh, Alan Vaughn, Hella Hammond, Ingo Swan, George McMullen, um, uh, Fran Farley, I had met Terry Ross, uh, a banker in Pennsylvania. I'd met some more people, and and you know, I I would get to know people, and I just have a sense that they might be good at this. And I had also begun testing people, and mm-hmm. so I uh, anyway, I got eleven people and sent them out the map. Same same deal. And ask him to uh, locate Alexander's tomb. And again, we got consensus areas. And so we did that. We went, I organized this expedition. I got five universities involved in it. Uh, University of Alexandria, Oxford University. Um, I can't even think of them all right at the moment. Uh, Alexandria, Oxford. Uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That's in my backyard. Yeah, anyway, so I got a bunch of universities involved who provided people. And the the immediate thing that struck me when I got the maps back and did the consensus analysis and all that was that, and I, uh, was that a number of the things they located were in, underwater which I thought was quite odd. Cleopatra's palace, Mark Anthony's palace, the Debonium, the lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Pompey's pillar, um, which was not in accord with what was historically known. So the 11 viewers were giving you uh, information that it was like the Catalina experiment where they are 
finding the same spots and their their viewings are coinciding and and this kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you look at, I've published all these papers. Uh, you know, I publish everything in peer-reviewed journals. You can go to my website, uh, stephanieswartz.com. You can go to academia.edu. You can go to researchgate.com. You can go to um, uh, Scopus. Uh, and these papers are all available. I make everything available. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, you can just download them. It tells you exactly how to do it. I wrote uh, a uh, the Alexandria Project became a book, uh, which came after The Secret Vaults of Time. And, uh, and then I wrote a book called Opening to the Infinite, which will teach you everything science knows about remote viewing. But there is an enormous amount of, of, how can I gracefully describe this, misinformation about remote viewing. Hmm. For instance, there is no one way to remote view. There is no best way to remote view. Ingo Swan created a, a, a technique because uh, he wanted to be the boss. <laughs> and uh, he was a homosexual and he'd been bullied when he was a boy very, very badly. And when he was asked to teach these guys in the army, he made up a technique which he himself didn't use. Um, and taught it to him, and he was the boss, and he liked that. We talked about it. I mean, it was, you know, he and I laughed about it at the time. Anyway, there is no one way to do it. That's the first thing that's important. But anyway, Opening to the Infinite is a book which will teach you everything that science knows about the subject of remote viewing, uh, which, is, by the way, is a dreadful term. Um, Ingo coined it. But it's, it has nothing to do with remote and has nothing to do with viewing. But that's where our understanding was in the 70s when he coined it. As I said, I had called it originally distant viewing, which is also a terrible term. Hmm. I would call it today non-local perception. Um, I didn't, we didn't understand sort of what we were dealing with. Today, I, after almost 60 years of doing this, I, um, uh, I would tell you that what we're dealing with is an information phenomena. It has nothing to do with energy. That's not what it's about. It's about opening co your consciousness to be able to uh, become aware of the non-local aspect of your consciousness. This has to do with continuity of consciousness, the fact that there is an eternal part of you, what religion calls the soul, that existed prior to incarnation and will continue after, after you're physically dead. And episodically, it manifests another personality. And um, you choose your parents, you choose your race, you choose your socioeconomic group, you choose where you're born. born. You know, you choose all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that what we're dealing with is information. And that, that what these remote viewers are doing, it's kind of like doing a Google search. And the, the, the key to the whole business 
whatever technique you use, is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. That's why meditators routinely do better than non-meditators, because meditation teaches you how to hold uh, uh, the intention, uh, uh, intention to awareness, and it teaches you to quiet the, the chatter that normally goes on in your head so that you can open to this non-local aspect of yourself. That's what's going on. And you can get any kind of information. Uh, now, in the five minutes we have left uh, before the next break, um, talk a bit more about the Alexandria, Alexandria Project. And you were expecting to find perhaps some ruins uh, buried under some sand, but they're telling you that they're underwater. Well, it's, Alexandria is the second largest city in Egypt. So I expected them to be underneath the modern city. And, and in fact, the, the tomb of Alexander, that's exactly correct. Cleopatra's palace, Mark Anthony's palace, the, 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 what had been the literal, the, the, the coastal edge of Alexandria at the time of Cleopatra uh, was about 35 feet further out. And again, uh, one of the things that I do in all of my experiments, I had done it with a deep quest experiment where the guys who were on the deep quest, they'd been already, before I got there, they'd already been searching for things for three months. So they had a very good idea of where everything was. And in this case, uh, when I realized this stuff was underwater, I contacted Harold Edgerton, who invented side scan sonar, and who was one of the most famous scientists in the world at that point, was the director of the uh, of MIT's radio physics laboratory. And I sent him a telex. I didn't know him. I just sent him a telex explaining what I was doing and saying, would he come over and do a side scan sonar of the Eastern Harbor of Alexandria before I did the remote viewing locations? And I wanted to see whether he could locate the same things that the remote viewers located, and if they were right, and, you know, could you have found them another way? So he came out, he, he wrote me back and was fascinated and said, uh, you know, send me a first-class ticket, put me up in a first-class hotel, and if you can do it during these dates, I'm your guy. And I said, of course, and he came out, and he did the uh, side-scan sonar work in the harbor, and he couldn't find anything. Boy, was that hard to do? I mean, did you have yes, to get all kinds of permits? And I mean, Oh, I had to get the government. Oh, yes. I mean, that part of it? Oh, oh yes. I, in order to get that, in order to get to that, um, I had to go to the governor of Alexandria, a man named Mohammed Hilmi, and I had to go to the head of uh, Egyptian archaeology, which is in the president's office, and I met with both of them, and, and the University of Alexandria uh, was opposed to me. Not they did a waste of time and wouldn't result in anything. It was just wasn't worth doing. And so we had a meeting at Governor Helmy's office, and um, they were, I think, in awe of, of uh, Harold Edgerton being there. They knew who he was. 
And they finally said, well, okay, if you can prove to us that this works, uh, then, then we'll go along, we'll help you do it. And I said, um, okay, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we're, um, we're doing an excavation of a buried city um, near what was Lake Mar uh, 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 Maria, uh, about 40, 40 miles, 40 kilometers um, outside of Alexandria. Okay, and hold it there, Stefan. We're coming up on the break. When we come sure. back, I'd like you to pick it up there. A fascinating story, and um, the whole Alexandria project is is uh, something that I think folks are really going to be impressed with. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. I'm Jonathan Womack sitting in tonight. We will be back shortly. speaking with Stephen Schwartz and we have Barbara Honiger who has some data to share for the last half hour. We're in the second hour right now and uh, I've got some slides to share as well. Uh, for now, uh, oh, I'm going to open the phone lines up uh, the last hour. So uh, let's see, Stefan, you want to pick up your, we're talking about uh, going to Alexandria and 
uh, Edgerton who's going to do this sonar test and you're you're sitting down with members of the <laughs> Alexandria government and got to get make all this happen and um, a lot of craziness going on so can you pick up where you left off before the break yeah sure so anyway they said if you can do this if you can locate something that we want you to find in this buried city about 40 kilometers outside of Alexandria, then we'll support you. And of course, they thought that I would just give up uh, because they didn't think it was real. I said, okay, sure, let's do it. Well, they didn't have a map that I could use, so we couldn't do the map part that we normally do. But I did do some research, and I found that, and I was very happy to find it, that the University of Guelph, the year before, had done a uh, ground-penetrating radar and, and, and uh, uh, side scan um, of this area that Alexandria, the university, was interested in and had marked where all the things that they thought were there to be found, where they were. So I had, again, what I always do in my experiments, I had an electronic remote sensing a parallel project that I didn't control so that there was no question you couldn't claim, oh, well, you went out at night and you, you know, you had a, some kind of a ground penetrating radar and that's how you found it, but you didn't tell anybody. So then you went out and made it look like remote viewing, all that kind of crap. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was very happy when they told me that and, and uh, when they, I, I asked them about it because I had looked it up. And they said, oh, yes, this guy did it, and blah, blah, blah. And they appointed a, uh, a archaeologist, a guy named Fakarani, to, uh, to oversee the whole thing. And, and so we, on the appointed day, uh, uh, George and Hella were both in uh, Alexandria at that point with me. So we took George and Hella out independently. And... Um, uh, and this, again, you can see this at uh, stephanieschwartz.com. You can see the movie. I made a movie out of it again, and it's called The Alexandria Project. You can watch George do it. So out of about 1,700 square kilometers, I mean, in the middle of the desert, and I mean desert, uh, get out of the car, uh, and we're walking around, and, and George kneels down with Fakarani, and Bakarani gives him the instruction. He said, I'm looking for, I want you to find me a building that's in the lost city of Maria and one that has um, mosaics or tiles, something like that. And George says, okay. So we walk around for a couple hours and then George says, okay, I know where I want to go and let's get back in the cars. And so we get back in the cars and we drive couple of miles away and he stopped the car and we get out of the car and George goes up the hill and we're walking along and, and I said, well, you know, where are you, George? And he said, well, I'm walking over a wall. And I said, a wall? He said, yeah, I'm walking over a wall. It's about three feet down. And, um, uh, and I said, well, uh, how many, how big, a, you know, how big a, what are we talking about? And he said, well, it's got three rooms. 
and uh, give me a give me a stake. And so I give him these wooden stakes that I had bought. And he, I said, I'm going to stake out the corners. So he stakes out the corners, and uh, we make note of that. And Fakarani and all his graduate students are there, and they're just snickering away because the place that George has picked, according to the University of Guelph, contains nothing. Hmm. So George goes away. It's about 114 degrees, hmm. and Hella comes back, and we bring her back because she's now beginning to have a real effect on the heat, and I was worried she was going to get sick. So I didn't make her do the walking around part. I just brought her up to the hill in general, but we removed the stakes so she couldn't see where George had picked uh, of these stakes. Um, and she walked around for a while on top of the hill, and she went to exactly the same place George went. Hmm. And she sat down in the sand and said, well, I'm, I'm sitting over this building. It's about three feet down. Um, there are three rooms, and in the middle room, there is this kind of, of clay tower. It's strange, this column. And uh, it has something to do with a lot of heat. And it's in this middle room. This is a Byzantine structure. It's not Roman. <coughs> it's not Egyptian. It's Christian. And um, snicker, 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 I can hear in the background. And... Uh, she says, and George will be able to define exactly. So she goes away, and, and by that time is suffering from heat stroke. And um, George comes back, and we put the stake. He puts the stakes down again, and he says, "I said, you know, tell me about the history of this building." He said, "Well, it's a Byzantine building. It's a Christian building." And um, and he describes these little tiles that are five eighths of an inch inch across, red, black, and white, and he draws them, and he says they have white chalky stuff on one side, and they're sort of polished on the other side, and there aren't a lot of them because they took them away, but you're going to find a handful of them. Now, what age are we talking with this Byzantine? Is this before Christ, or? No, no, this, this is Christian, this is before. The Muslims took over Egypt in 641. So this is probably uh, maybe um, 100 AD, 100 BCE, as we would say today. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's early Christian. Uh, it has to do with the Roman Empire split into two and one is the eastern part was in turkey and what is now turkey and the western part was in headed by what is now rome or was then rome and so remote viewing two thousand years ago yeah yeah oh yeah if you, that's what you're talking about yeah a little over two thousand years yes and uh, so th then george does all that and he goes away and i say to fakarani what do you think and he said, I think it's a waste of time. I don't even want to dig here because there's nothing there. We know from the University of Guelph, there's nothing down there. And in any case, if there were anything down there, it would be Roman or Egyptian. It would not be Byzantine. And, uh, and I said, well, I'm the one who's paying for this, so we're going to dig where they tell us to dig. 
And so we agree to that. And um, he starts digging. It gets uh, Bedouin workers that come in to do the digging and under his direction and, and these graduate students he's got with him. And at three feet, we find the wall. And out of 1,700 square kilometers, George is 28 inches off. <laughs> so he, and he locates the corners. They're exactly where he says. There are three rooms as this digging goes on over a period of weeks. And um, I'm not doing the digging. Fakharani is doing the digging. So there's no question about who's doing what. Did they find the shaft that Hella mentioned? Yeah, was... Yes, and, and when we got down, uh, uh, we find the clay column that Hella described, and it turns out this is a Bedouin oven that must have been used for a while after the city was abandoned by the Byzantines, uh, and they, it was a kind of oven. They would build a fire around it. It would get very hot, hence the heat that, that Hella saw. And, uh, and then they would slap dough on it, and that would make uh, the bread. And so we keep digging, and we get down to the foundation, and there are the Christian consecration marks. So this is a Christian building. Mm. And we go a little, little off to one piece, and uh, in the corner of one room, we find uh, these tiles, red, black, and white. Um, they have white, uh, what was plaster, uh, on one side, and they're polished on the other. But exactly what George said, except that George thought they were square and they're actually round. But that was the only mistake he made. They were red, black, and white. They had the plaster. Uh, they were, the others were gone. These were... They had apparently taken most of them away, but had lost a, you know, a few had remained. Uh, it is a Christian building. It was exactly where they put it. Uh, the University of Guelph was in error, or not in error so much as they just hadn't had instruments that were sensitive enough to pick it up, I guess. Mm. Anyway, the whole thing turns out to be exactly as the remote viewers describe. So we go back to the governor and the governor listens to all this and looks at all the results. Uh, I've got the uh, secretary general of the Alexandrian Archaeological Society, who's also a professor at the university. I've now got the head of the Department of Archaeology, a guy named Mustafa el uh, who's involved and um, they are now on board. And uh, also Mikolaski Rajevich who was the head of the Warsaw University um, uh, archaeological group who were doing a big dig in the middle of the city. And so everybody's on board now because they were just blown away by the fact that uh, this parts manager from Canada <laughs> and the fine arts photographer from L.A. were able to locate what electronics could not locate and describe in meticulous detail exactly what we would find and so that's, that's okay, cool we'll because i know that uh, in a lot of cases uh, in similar situations the governments of these cities over there are not that open to having foreigners coming in digging around right <laughs> well 
that's what I'm told, although that wasn't my experience. I, I, I have done this all over the world in all kinds of countries. And, um, you know, I, I, first of all, I start at the top. So I started with the president's office of Egypt. That's how I got started. So, uh, you know, I was in government. I, I'm not, I, I have experience about how you work with governments that I think most people like this don't. So, no, I've never, no one has ever said to me, you can't do it. Mm. And um, they were blown away. Yeah, anyway, so they were very, uh, and so um, I had Harold Edgerton do the side scan sonar of the Eastern Harbor, as I was describing, and he came up with nothing. And so then we did the remote viewer part, and we immediately found Cleopatra's Palace and Mark Anthony's Palace and the Lighthouse of Pharos and uh, a, a famous monument of the time called Pompey's Pillar. So then they were really blown away now at this point, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, everybody's very friendly now, so I'm not uh, – it all went very nicely. Hmm. Anyway, they um, – so we're doing that, and then the I had them locate uh, – we. Uh, the tomb of Alexander, which is they put under the mosque of Nebi Daniel. And I started excavation there with Fakharani. Uh, but this, at, this was at the same time that the, in Iran, the uh, Shiite, uh, which is one of the two branches of Islam, the Shiite students captured the American embassy, if you remember that. Oh, was it 79? It was 79, yes, exactly. And this caused a great to-do, as you can imagine. And the director of archaeology came down from Cairo and said to me, you know, we know about your successes, but we just can't let you keep digging under this mosque. They're Shiites, and it could cause an incident, and Egypt is just not ready for an international incident. You know, they could hold you hostage or something, and it, we're just not going to do that. Yeah. So I was very depressed about that because George and Hella had described this this tomb very clearly, and as had the other people before we even got to Egypt. And as we're driving away, I'm sort of going grumble, grumble, grumble. And George says, "Well, I don't know why you're so upset. The bones aren't there anyway." And I said, "What? What do you mean?" He said, "Oh, well, the bones were taken away." I said, oh, yeah? Who took them away? He said, well, you know, before the Muslims took over Alexandria, that's 641, the Caliph Omar, uh, a group of monks came down from uh, Alexandria, from uh, up near Cairo, a, a monastery that's out in the desert, and um, they believed that the bones of John the Baptist were... Uh, uh, had been buried underneath the, the mosque of Nebi Daniel, which was then a church before it became a mosque. And, and they came down masquerading as merchants with a bunch of donkeys and they had leather bags and they got all the bones from the ossuary underneath the mosque, including the bones of Alexander. And they uh, put them in the leather bags and took them up to the monastery. And that's where they are. 
And I said, whoa, well, that's quite a story, George. Mm. Uh, um, but, you know, this was pre-DNA. I said, even if I, even if I could get to wherever it is you're describing and, and they would give, you know, let me have the bones, uh, how would I know Alexander's bones from anybody else's bones? Because you say that they took all the bones out of the ossuary and took them up there. So how would I tell Alexander's bones from John the Baptist? And he said, oh, it's simple. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, why is it simple? He said, because uh, when Mark Anthony was there with Cleopatra, in order to associate himself with Alexander, who was in a crystal coffin, which, by the way, is why uh, Stalin learned this about the crystal coffin, and that's why he put Lenin in a crystal coffin. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, he said uh, he went in and he took his red Russia, his red Roman war cape off, and he had him open the crystal coffin and he put the the war cape around the body of Alexander so that he would be associated with Alexander. I said, oh, okay. I still didn't get it, and I said well, I don't understand how that helps. And he said, oh, well, because when the Christians took over, they, they didn't care about uh, Alexander's tomb. You know, Alexander was a pagan as far as they were concerned. And so they didn't maintain the, the, the uh, tomb correctly, the Soma it's called. And um, water leaked into the crystal coffin and, le and the red dye from the war cape leached through and stained the bones red. So the bones you're looking for are stained red. Hmm. Oh, well, that, uh, yeah, that changes things pretty significantly. <laughs> yeah. But I still didn't know, you know, monastery somewhere up in the, anyway, and about two weeks later, I get a phone call from NBC. And they say to me, there's a monastery up near Cairo that in doing some repairs has discovered what they believe are the bones of John the Baptist. And you have the only archeologically trained film crew in Egypt. Could you go up and film it for us? Hmm. So I said, sure, I would do that. So we made a deal and uh, a few days later, we drove up to the monastery of San Macarios at Wadi Natrun, which is a, uh, literally all by itself out in the desert and uh looks like a looks like a castle or a fortress and only has one door and i knocked on the door it doesn't have a telephone or it didn't then i knocked on the door and this monk came and opened the door and i explained who i was and people knew by that time and uh, i said uh, NBC has asked me, I understand you've discovered what you believe are the bones of John the Baptist, and and um, so would you let me film where you found them? And he said, yes, we'll let you do that. So I, we went into the this uh, large enclosed area, which had a number of chapels scattered in this open space, surrounded by this high wall. And he took me to this one chapel, and he said, we always called this the Chapel of John the Baptist, but we never knew why. And then the, there was a crack in the wall, and we 
repaired it, and in the process of repairing it, we found this tomb. And in, and in the tomb, we found all these bones. And I said, oh, well, that's quite interesting. I said, do you have any idea where the bones came from? He said, oh, yes, we know exactly where they came from. And he takes me into the library. And there's this ancient scrolls. And, and he gets this one down. And he says, we know that before the Muslims took over Alexandria, the monks of the day um, masqueraded as merchants with, and took their donkeys and leather bags down to the, the mosque of Nebi Daniel. And they um, got all the bones out of the ossuary and brought them back up. But we mm. never knew where to buried them. And they thought they had found the bones of John the Baptist, but we didn't know where they hid them until we made this discovery. And I now I'm paying very close attention. And I said, well, is there anything odd about any of the bones? And he said, well, it's the bones of about 14 people. No, nothing really odd. Well, there are a, some of the bones are stained red. And said, oh, are they now? And he said, yeah. And so he goes over to this big chest, which is the altar, and he opens it up, and there's this red bag inside. He opens the bag, lets me look at it, but he won't let me take a picture of the bones, only of the bag when it's closed. And he says, we believe these are the bones of John the Baptist. I don't tell him anything about Alexandria mm -hmm. or Alexander. And um, so he lets us film everything, which we do. And uh, we go back. Um, and I am trying to figure out how, how could I prove that George was right? I mean, just the fact that this guy said they were red stained bones. Well, that's pretty unusual and that there were, okay, that's pretty unusual, but that doesn't mean that they're Alexander's. But then a few years later, DNA is developed and the bones of Philip of Macedonia, Alexander's father are found. And someone does a DNA analysis of those bones and publishes it. So now I have a direct linkage. So I have gone back for the last, oh, 20 years, periodically going back to the monks and asking them, would you let me do a DNA analysis of the red stained bones? But they, they still, they don't know which bones are uh, John the Baptist. And so they won't let me do it because they see them all as holy relics and don't know which is which. But I believe that the bones of Alexander the Great are in the monastery of San Macarios in the, in the desert uh, at Wadi Natrun. And I think either I uh, eventually or someone else is going to be able to do the DNA analysis. And we're going to answer this question. That's fascinating. Now, were you also plotting these areas on any kind of earth grid map? Were you interested in the, the actual locations and their relations to power points on the earth? No. Okay. But they probably were. They're probably on. Well, very possibly, but I, no, I've never done that. Uh, what I looked at is I evaluate not only the location, but I have, I take 
every concept that the remote viewer said. So if I said, uh, the man in the blue shirt doing the interview with me, and, um, and let's say your shirt was gray, actually, that would be the man, that's one, uh, sitting at his desk, that's two, uh, with the gray, that's three, shirt, that's four. I evaluate every, literally, nobody else does this. Every single concept is rated by independent experts, not myself, to be correct, partially correct, but operational, or can't be evaluated or wrong. Uh, correct, partially correct, but operational means Everything about the, sh the shirt, if it was gray instead of blue, that would be partially correct but operational. Mm. So I, I ha I, there's hundreds and hundreds of concepts in these, in these various projects. Well, yeah, like Russell would, uh, they would do the remote view, and then he would have like parapsychologists act as like judges. They would look at the, the sketches and see if they could match them, and and that way it was sort of independently verified. Well, those are experimental. They're, they're looking at targets. Th th those are not practical applications um, that I'm describing. I'm, what I'm talking about is a, a project that involves multiple universities. It's all done in the open. It's, there's, I don't allow, I, I turned down uh, classified, doing classified research. I was approached by the government about doing it. They were gonna give me a million six for five years. And I turned them down because I said, do you want me to classify this? And they said, of course, which is what happened at SRI. And I said, well, I won't do it because I think anything we know about consciousness ought to be made available to everybody. And um, so. Oh, we got to pause for the next break. You're listening to the other side of midnight.com. My name is Jonathan Womack. We will be back after this short break. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is the third hour. And if you have a question for Stefan, uh, you can call us at 917-889-8802. That number again is 917-889-8802. Well, thank you. It's Barbara. Barbara, we'll uh, we'll fit you in the last half hour. Uh, I have to go over some slides uh, this next half hour oh, okay. because um, yeah, I, I need to get Stephen in on this project because of its importance and uh, the scope of it. So why don't we switch here? Let's see. If you go to the show page on on the website, you can click on fast links to Jonathan and you'll see uh, my slides for tonight. I kept it to a minimum as much as I could. There's a lot of background noise. Who's uh, moving their mic around or something? Kind of noisy. Is that you, Barbara? (laughs) Um, No, it's not. I just got off mute to undo it. Not me. Okay. Well, somebody's making some noise, but... um, Stefan, if you want to uh, chime in on, are you able to see my slides, Stefan? Uh, are you on the website? No. What's What's the website? The other side of midnight dot com. All right. Wait a minute. Dot com. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other side of well, there's a whole bunch of things with Frank. Moreno, is that is that you? 
No, it should be just one, the other side of midnight.com. No, no, there's a whole bunch of them. Well, you can just type in the URL. Just type in, you know, www.theothersideofmidnight.com. It'll take you to the website. That's what I did type in. The other side of midnight.com. That's what I typed in. And uh, it brought Johnson, you to the I think he needs to press on tonight's show in the left, uh, upper left menu. Well, I don't. I have no idea. Um, I'm looking at WABC Radio. Yeah. Frank Moreno. I'm looking at. Uh, well, it sounds like you're typing into a search engine, and it's bringing you up. I am. I'm results. typing Google. That's what I'm doing. I'm typing yeah. in Google. Yeah. Don't don't use a. Just type in the URL in, in the uh, address bar. You can just type it in, and it'll take you right to the to the website. Well, www. Or Keith just put it in the uh, Skype chat window as well. All right. I will capture his thing. Click on that. Yeah. It's important for you to see. Uh, oh, yeah. I see it. Yeah, okay. I, I think I've met Richard Hoagland. You probably have. Somewhere along the way. Um, yeah, very possible. Now, you want to, um, in the upper left, uh, there's that sidebar menu, and it says tonight's show, Saturday, March 4th. Yeah. You can click on that. It should take you to the show page for tonight. Okay, tonight's show. Uh, archaeology. And you can either just scroll down the page and it will bring you uh, eventually you'll see, see your book. I see your picture. I see Barbara's picture. Yep. I see the presidential briefing. I see, I see all your book movie. covers. I see book covers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you have to click on um, you look for fast links to items because Keith put my slides on a separate page. All right. What am I looking for? Uh, as you're scrolling, you should see these little sections. It says guest page, fast links to items, Barbara, Jonathan, Stefan, fast links to bios. Fast links. Oh, fast links to Barbara, Jonathan, Stefan. Yeah, fast links to Jonathan. That will take you to my slides. So just click okay. on that. Okay, let's see what happens. Oh, yeah. Okay, so mission plan, architects of Utah. Yeah, you can click on the slides and they get big. Yeah, okay. So what are you asking me about these slides? Well, uh, before the show, you asked me what I had found. So <laughs> that made me smile. Um, we're not going to quite get there tonight, but... Um, what happened was uh, about a year and a half ago, we had Scott Walter on from America Unearthed, which is a popular show. Um, he's an archaeologist, and he goes around America you know, testing these various sites and so on. And so we were looking at uh, an area of Canyonlands National Park where they, they had found this monolith. It was in the news for about a week. They found this 10-foot-tall kind of stainless steel monolith. Oh, yes. I remember that. You remember that? Yeah. 
and it's surrounded by all what is obvious to me and others, you know, as, as ruins. And then Keith Morgan, our engineer tonight, had gone there on vacation to Archer's Park, and he was showing some pictures. And of course, and when I saw those, I was like, "That's it!" I, <laughs> and it all came back to me too. When I was nine, visiting Colorado back in 1968, I go out of body. Well, I've been going out of body since 1965. So uh, this was about three years in, and I'm flying around Rocky Mountains, going, "Wow, look at all this stuff." <laughs> It's like monuments, and you know, I'll have to come back to this at some point. And then, you know, 50, 60 years go by, and I see Keith's pictures, and I go, oh, my gosh. This is full circle for me. I have, I have to do this the rest of my life. This, this is my mission now, to bring out this, this immaculate uh, – structures in the southwest there on the Colorado Plateau uh, because everybody's been mass conditioned to believe that it's interesting erosion and that really pisses me off and I I just can't stand for it so uh, I did a full show last October with Richard uh, some 65 slides showing all the alignments and the arches and some of the technology the acoustical amphitheaters all this light uh, you know, when I'm out of body, I can see all the, this light that's going through there, and I'm wondering what is going on here, and asking all the questions of my guides and this kind of thing. So uh, tonight's slides, uh, the first one just outlines the mission that I, I'd love to put together if I could find a few volunteers. And they would go there with a couple of drones, and they would send the drones in. I would provide them with uh, the locations of these hidden entrances. I've recorded uh, a few hundred of them at this point all over uh, the park and beyond. I mean, this goes from Arches Park over to Lake Mead to Sedona, Arizona, and up, I mean, it's the whole Southwest there. And yes. yep. So uh, slide two is um, just overlooking Park Avenue. Park Avenue is in Arches Park and seems to be the center of these architectural anomalies and there's you know like 2500 arches in in arches park and uh they're doing something really cool so slide three airwolf the movie i maintain that these monuments in arches park and monument valley and zion and on and on and on southwest they have interiors and in these interiors are artifacts that are left for us to find, and we are meant to decode the technology behind uh, all of these monuments and the arches, and that is my mission. Um, so sure. I, thank you. I, I, when, when Russell told me about you, Stefan, I was like, whoa, 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 what? So I had to call you. So um, I'm very excited you're here because for the last year and a half, I've been spiritually immersed in that part of the world. And uh, about six weeks ago, I, you know, I'm asking the guides, what is going on with these arches and, and the light that's coming through? What is all this doing? 
And they, I, I'm flying through space with these three guides. They, they're showing me, we go to all these planets. They're all around the galaxy. And they're all sculpted. And they're showing me this. And I'm going, wow, wow. And we're going from planet to planet, different star systems. And we get back to Earth. And I, I have a look at Earth. And I'm like, oh, wow. Now <laughs> I, I get it. So, um Slide five is, this is part of the entrance to Park Avenue in Arches Park. Slide six, I figure the best way to uh, disprove the myth of this interesting erosion is for me to paint. If I have to paint all of Arches Park, I will, all these murals. I mean, these are all, there's libraries inside these places. All the history of these people is written on the outside. Um, All of these formations and structures have patterns and uh, characteristics. So I painted uh, this spot here on on, uh, slide number six. And you can see along the bottom I have painted in yellow is the big dog uh, and painted in red is is the, it's always the families. You have the the mama, the, the dad, the kids. You have the, the, the in, in green I have Let's call her, if, this, if that's a woman, uh, Queen Hera, let's say. Um, but as you can see, this, there's much more going on here than interesting erosion. This is not erosion. This is sculpted. And these uh, archaeologists have, have dated these formations back to about 150 million years ago. This all started uh, coming into play. And there's a, like, two main... Uh, theories for how these all formed and and so on. But let's move on to number uh, slide seven. This is a a cliff wall in Arches Park. um, And I call it the the Hera mural. And this was in the background of one of Keith's photos a year and a half ago. And when I saw it, I just went, oh my God. So slide eight. Wait, wait, before you get, what is it you're looking at? In slide seven? Yeah. Well, um, I, I guess it doesn't look like much. Now, I have painted this mural, and I will be sharing that painting. I'll be coming back with Richard to do a full show on this, and uh, I'll, I'll show that painting. I, and I've decoded much of the story that is depicted here on this cliff wall. It's very fascinating. So in slide number eight, this is very important. uh, You see that cliff mural in the background and in the foreground, you see we're looking now across Park Avenue. This, This part of the park is called Park Avenue because you walk through this lane and on each side it has these very tall structures that reminded the rangers of New York City. So that's why it's called Park Avenue. So this site, we're looking across Park Avenue. Uh, The Hera mural cliff wall is in the background there. In the foreground, you have this partition wall. And when I'm out of body, I saw these beams of light coming through on the fall equinox. And they're hitting spots on the mural they're very important. They're highlighting these spots for us to find. 
And I couldn't find the holes at first. It took me a little while, but then I found them. You can see them. Um, there's four holes in this partition, and that's where the light's coming through. So slide nine. Now this is, we're at the cliff wall looking from the opposite direction now. And the sun, this is on 9:23 of last year on the fall equinox. The sun is coming up in the morning, and it's shining through those four apertures in, in the partition wall there. And this whole thing is all sculpted and incredible and beautiful and tells all the story. But you can see the sun is shining through those four apertures. So now let's go to number slide 10. I lined those holes up with the cliff mural. And just as I had seen while I was out of body, they line up perfectly. The top one lines up with Hera's face. It frames it. And then you have these three apertures below her. And in slide 11, now you can see I, I made the partition wall. Uh, I reduced the opacity so you can see through the wall now. And you just kind of see where uh, these parts of this mural are lit up. And slide number 12, I, I just made a template, uh, used a green screen. And then I go over to the cliff wall and I put that template on it. And this slide shows with the insets, this would be the third aperture down. This is what it's highlighting, this little part of the mural. It's actually pretty big because that, that cliff wall is like 700 feet. I mean, it's huge. It's massive. So I'm looking at this going, okay, what is this? This, I, I feel spiritually, I feel very connected to this. I hear the voices from the past. I feel the ancestors speaking to me. It's this kind of thing. It's a very deep connection. And I'm wondering, okay, what is, what is it that's going on here? So uh, let's go back to slide number 14. Now you can see the, on the left of the slide, this is where we're being directed to on that cliff wall. It looks like a statue of, uh, say a side profile of this woman is what it strikes me as. She's possibly, I don't know if she's standing or sitting in a, in a throne, but uh, it's a woman. She's wearing the, the crown. And then, you know, I'm doing this documentary on Stonehenge with Maria Wheatley. Uh, so I'm pretty immersed in that as well. But it struck me, I said, I've seen this before. So I went and looked at, sure enough, one of the slides that Maria had sent me like there she is one of the arches in the trilithons at stonehenge and she's lit up on the summer solstice so this is probably all over the earth in different places and let's see let's go to slide 15. uh this i, I chose this slide because it reminds me of these apertures that are acting as sight lines to direct our attention to certain spots on these mural walls. And I'm thinking, gosh, it has something, all this architecture has something to do with constellations. I'm not sure what it is, but 
So slide 16 is just a, a picture of Google Earth when you go on there, and this is what you see. Number 17, I highlighted the Colorado Plateau, and the, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on Google Earth to, you know, when I go out of body and I go find something, I get up, I go on Google Earth to see if I can find it and pinpoint it and then prove, you know, just to help prove my, my findings. So I, I'm looking at this sort of, it reminds me of a little fish or something kind of facing the camera looking up and the, what would be the left eye of this fish figure is where Arches Park is. If that left eye was a clock, Arches Park is about 10 o'clock from that left eye. So I can zoom right in very quickly. I'm right at Arches Park. And so number 18, I'm just showing a few of these, you know, Richard's hyperdimensional model, 19.5 is uh, an important spot. There's a, a line, a latitude, at that point uh, where a lot of energy is centered, also 39 degrees, which is twice 19.5. And indeed, Arches Park is right on the 39. It's, it's just a little below 39 degrees. And slide 19, I, I'm, like I said, I, I'm going to paint all this stuff. And I thought I'd paint some of these geoglyphs because in Arches Park you can walk up to that cliff wall and to where you could reach up and touch it and there are glyphs there that you can read that are, are made for that that view now if you back up 500 yards from that cliff wall you'll see different art and then if you go up a thousand feet and look down, you're going to see something different. And then you go to 100,000 feet up and you see it's that kind of thing. And it goes all the way up to Earth orbit. So I, I painted some of these murals, um, slide 20, so you can see a little better. Um, there's this, uh, the blue area on slide 20 to me is a woman, probably the same woman. Uh, the mother of humanity, according to these like Anunnaki story, and um, but you can see there's quite a bit going on here. This is all art, and long ago, you know, 100 million years ago, this looked pretty sweet. Uh, 21 is some more, uh, another painting, and slide i gotta go quickly through these 22 and 23 or uh, some more paintings this sort of same area and um slide 24 is another one now slide 25 this is in reference to the obe i had six weeks ago i was telling you about where these three guides i'm not sure sure who they are but i believe they're three of the folks that were behind the construction of all of these planets, including Earth, that are, they sculpt all over. They probably have a, a, a thousand planets like this in, in, their, in their system. So I, I went, I was doing an animation after the OBE. I, I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta make this. I'm a 3D artist. So I, I go to my stellar cartography set and, 
uh, you know, I'm making these planets and I'm, I'm zooming around uh, the galaxy and uh, I didn't have time to render all this for tonight, but I did, did take a few pictures and uh, in slide 27, this is the important one because I keep asking the guides, what is this architecture going on in Arches Park with these 2,500 arches and the lights all going? What is this? And it's a bit above my pay grade, but it's sinking into me uh, little by little. So as I said before, when I got back to Earth after this spin around the galaxy, I, I looked and you know, I see South America, and, and now I see South America is actually sculpted. And slide 30, uh, North America, I'm, I'm like, oh, my God, now I'm seeing all these sculpted. Because I just looked at all these other planets they show me that are also sculpted, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is crazy. This is great. So uh, when I come back uh, in a month or so for uh, a full show, I'm going to get into some of the nitty gritty of what I found uh, in some of my Google Earth videos of these hidden entrances. You can actually see into the chamber artifacts. So I will be sharing that uh, on the next show. We don't have time for tonight. But uh, the last few slides of mine, uh, I just wanted to point out, because I'm always thinking about disclosure we're always looking for libraries on Mars and the moon and everything. But the funny thing is they're right here on earth. We don't need to go very far, really. We just have to go to Arches park and, and figure out these symbols and the glyphs. And once we get their language figured out, the rest is, is just going to fall into place. So 32, um, you can, there's a link there to this video. I, I was just on YouTube and I saw a UFO video on, and I paused it immediately when I, I saw, because there's shape-shifting UFOs all over the skies all the time and observing us. And I thought, geez, that looks like the, uh, the double arch, the, the window arches in Arches Park. And to me, they're not windows, they're eyes. It's Hera. She's, that's her eyes. She's looking over this dune area towards Park Avenue. You know, this is a whole story. It's a whole thing. So 34, slide 34, I just, I'm doing a comparison there with the hair's eyes and this, these portals. And then my last slide, 35, I have to mention Ingo Swan and uh, his arches on the moon that he, he viewed uh, when he was working with uh, the men in black and, and so forth for the CIA. And it's it's worth mentioning that, as you said, Stefan, you can choose where you're, you're born to, what part of the world. And Ingo was born outside of Arches Park. So he's tied to that area just as I am. And it's too bad I didn't get a chance to meet him because we could have talked about that quite a bit. I um, so what time do we have? It's 2.28. Um, all right, uh, we got 90 seconds, so let me read off. Um, I don't have the phone number in front of me anymore, but uh, if you'd like to call in with a question, feel free to do that. And when we come back from the break, 
Um, I'm going to ask Stephen just his impression of my slides real quick. And then Barbara has something she wants to share with us. So with that said, you're listening to the other side of midnight.com with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack, and we will be back after this short break. Stefan, we'd very much like to have you come back uh, when Richard's feeling better and talk more about your work because I think we just kind of scratched the surface. Uh, we just got through the early years, and there is a lot more material to discuss and share with our listeners. So um, hopefully you can come back another time and we can we can pick this up again. So uh, what was what was your quick impression of my slides? Anything to add? Well, my, my advice to you is that you need to do a very meticulous documentation. And you said that there are thing artifacts to be found in some of these caves, so you should predict what 
you think is going to be found in the caves, and then you should have that notarized so that you create an unimpeachable chronology. Um, That's what I uh, want to do. I want to make it so that no one can refute this. It's it's going to be clear, like like painting the monuments. People will be able to see what I see. It'll be clear. Folks like Scott Walter from America Unearthed is going to go, oh, wow, okay, like that. And it's not going to be any more of this interesting erosion. You know, that, that's, that conditioning, uh, that, that has to come to an end. And, you know, when I do, I spend a lot of time watching the YouTube videos that the vacation people go to the park and they take. And, and there are quite a few people that do come away and they go, those are ruins. So people get it, and but nobody's done a deep dive and painted this stuff and made it so that, I mean, this is disclosure here. To me, this means disclosure. These people were here. They, these are the folks from, well, we'll, we'll get into that another time. But, um, yeah, Stephen, I agree with you. I will do as, as much as I can to document this and um, – do it like you've it's done. You've chronology. Chronology, yes, and and have it uh, notarized and yes, I, I will follow in your footsteps on that. I think you've done a wonderful job, and I'm so happy you've you've done the work you have. And so, Barbara, uh, you have something you you want to share. I don't know what it is, but um, would you like to jump into that? Yes, I know what it is. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, first off, Stephen, I don't know how we haven't met, you, you know, either in person or electronically, when I give you a little thumbnail sketch, sketch about my background, which is the reason that Richard Hoagland wanted me to be on this show with you. Um, uh, in a nutshell, uh, I've led a life of absolutely, unbelievably phenomenal synchronicities, which is why Alan Vaughn in one of his books called me Lady Luck, <laughs> uh, which was a bit of an exaggeration, but that's what he was referring to. And this incredible life I've lived, which has focused uh, my psychic knowing on ancient Egypt predominantly, um, led me to have earned the first ever graduate degree. Uh, in experimental psychology and consciousness studies, which was in 1981. I was the first graduate at John F. Kennedy University's program. Oh, uh, walked a... across the stage with Manly Hall. Were you there? <laughs> I was a, a uh, associated professor. I've forgotten what they called me. And yeah. I knew Manly Hall very well. Oh, you were an associate professor at JFK. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, it may be a non-residential professor. Or I, I, yes, I think so, because I didn't meet you there. You didn't do a lecture there. No, I can't think of the name. Well, I, I spoke. I can't think of the name of the woman who was the head of it at that point. Hmm. It was so John, professor ago. John Palmer was the head John of John Palmer, yes. I knew all those people. And with Manley, I was the senior research, a senior fellow at Philosophical Research Society. Yes, I know. I saw that, saw that in your bio, which is mind-blowing. Um, 
Also, Russell Targ selected me to follow him as the second president of the parapsychology research group at Stanford University in that area immediately after his having been the first president because of my psychic ability. I've also, like you, been in the Navy. For 16 years, I was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School here in Monterey Peninsula, where I live. Oh, yeah. Another incredible coincidence, before I get to the real meat of what I want to tell you in my question, is you mentioned the search for Red October in the Iran-Contra affair um, and the, the hostage crisis, the Iran hostage crisis. When I published my book, October Surprise, which is on the deep story behind the Iran side of the Iran hostage crisis, um, I published that book in May of uh, of uh, 1989, and um, about three years later, Gary Sick, who had been Navy Captain Gary Sick, who had been uh, Carter's head of everything to do with Iran throughout the hostage crisis in the Carter White House National Security Council, he wrote he wrote a book by the same title as mine. And the link to the search to Red October, seeing as you raised it, was that. After Gary wrote his book, which basically plagiarized mine and didn't even mention mine, which was published three years before his and was the first, I received a call out of the blue from the scriptwriter who had been who wrote the script for the search for Red October, whose name escapes me at the moment. He called me at my house here in the Monterey Peninsula, woke me up in the morning, and he said, "Are you Miss Honiger?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Well, I just want you to know that." Um, I was just asked to write a script for Gary's sixth book, October Surprise, and I'd already read yours, and I told them I wouldn't do it because he was stealing your work. <laughs> so uh, uh, Sony Pictures, uh, they were trying to get a half a million dollars to option Gary's sixth book, October Surprise, and that didn't happen thanks to an honest man who was the scriptwriter for the search for Red October. But the most important thing I wanted to mention to you, and I, I will ask for your uh, email. I'll get that, get that from Keith or Richard, and I'll get back to you with details by email. However, in a nutshell, the main reason Richard wanted me to be on this show, and I've been on a number of shows on the other side of midnight on it, including the one with Scott Walter as well, um, I have had a spontaneous direct knowing, which used to be called Gnosis, about a phenomenally important buried archaeological temple uh, near the Giza Plateau. And uh, as I said, I'll communicate with you offline about that because we've already done a number of shows that included it. But right now I'm working with Richard and Maria Wheatley uh, on this very major psychic archaeology project uh, just just, uh, close to the Giza Plateau where Maria will be in late March and for which, um, at the beginning of this program, I asked people to donate uh, to um, to Richard Hoagland's website to the Alan Beale fun, uh, Alan Beale Prince fundraising campaign because he desperately needs a thousand dollars to repair the Accutron that he needs to get to Maria before she leaves for Giza in late March. So I'm going to make a plug for that again. Please, everybody, donate anything you can and do it tonight do it tonight so that the Accutron can be repaired and um, the program can go can go forward so here's my question with all that background my question is um, two questions right now you probably know who I'm talking about forgive me for not remembering her name at the moment I have actually met her 
uh, when I was in Egypt in 19, uh, excuse me, 2017. Um, but right now there's an archaeologist, a woman from South America, who, is at, who has been actively looking with the blessing of the authorities um, for Cleopatra's tomb on land in the area of Alexandria. And my yes, first I'm familiar is, with that. Have you worked with her to help her try to? No, find no, I, I don't. I don't know her, but I have. I have read in uh, archaeological literature that she's yes. doing that. Right. Uh, well, I was hoping maybe you you could try to help her <laughs> because she's she's found minor things. Um, but she, you know, it would be important to see if maybe somebody could remote view with a map to help her out. Anyway, that's number one. But number two, um, I was blown away by all of your work that you mentioned tonight, and I've been familiar with it for years. But the details you gave tonight, especially the Alexandria Project, which, of course, is the closest to my heart and soul because it's in from ancient Egypt. So my question is, have you done any remote viewing work? on other major uh, ancient Egyptian sites, in particular, the pyramid, the Sphinx, the Hall of Records, anything besides Alexandria? No, I very specifically, Barbara, only focused on Ptolemaic Egypt. The problem is that in remote viewing, when you non locate non-local consciousness, when you access non-local consciousness, Something that is believed by a lot of people to be true is as numinous as actual truth. And there is an enormous amount of nonsense about pharaonic Egypt. So I very deliberately was not interested and only interested in Ptolemaic Egypt because it's not well known and people don't have strongly held beliefs about it. Oh, that's, that's a good point. Although uh, with all of the nonsense and the, the conspiracy theories, maybe you could straighten this all out, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, you know, if somebody gave me the funding to sort all that out, um, I will say that they have just discovered a, uh, a, chamber, a, 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 a corridor and chamber in the Great Pyramid which nobody knew about until about a week ago. And George McMullen predicted it. Um, George and I went up to the Great Pyramid, uh, not to get into remote view, but just to uh, go see it. I just and get into the King's Chamber. But as we were, two weird things happened. Um, as we were going in, George said to me as we were going in the tunnel that you enter in, he said, you know, there's a, another tunnel up above me they don't know about. Hmm. And, um, and he gave me the dimensions, which are essentially correct, according to the paper I just read. And the, the other thing that was really quite strange about it was when we were through and came out of the king's chamber, because they told us we had to leave, the guy standing at the, you know, uh, the, not the guard exactly, but, well, the guard, I mean, the guy that controlled the entrance into the Great Pyramid looked at me and looked at George and said, did we let you have long enough? <laughs> and and that, that was a very strange comment. But in any case, no, I, 
I've, as I say, I very deliberately did not get involved with Pharaonic Egypt. I only got involved with Ptolemaic Egypt, and um, and it would take quite a lot to design an experiment to my standards where you could eliminate the um, people attuning themselves. Well, I'll give you an example, not, not in Egypt, but another example. Uh, there are only two areas where Edgar Cayce was incorrect, if you're familiar with the Cayce material. Of course. Yes, I am. One is the Egyptian material, which is fundamentally wrong, and the other is the Atlantis material. Hmm. And the reason that it's wrong is that the people that came to ask him the questions were obsessed with these two subjects. And what people don't understand is that when you form an intention contract, that is someone asks you, would you be willing to look at this? The person asking the question is a player in the access to the non-local. And so the people that came to ask Casey about Atlantis and I was one of the first people, by the way, to look for Atlantis. That's a whole other story. We found uh, this, this uh, what we thought was some kind of Atlantean structure. Turned out it wasn't. And then the, the, the Atlantis Road, I, Peter Tompkins, who did uh, Secret Life of Plants with my friend Chris, Chris uh, Bird. Peter and I looked at the supposed Bimini Road. It turns out it's natural beach rock. And so I began to look at why would people be wrong? Why would Casey be wrong? He was right about some of the other things. And the answer is because the people that ask him the questions are obsessed with a particular view. And when you go into the non-local, it's like doing a Google search. You are driven by the intention of the questioner as much as your own intention and their intention was to tune into the thought form, the informational architecture in the non-local, which represented their beliefs. And, and why so wouldn't that be true for the Alexandria Project, for instance? Why wasn't that true of Alexandria? Of the because Alexandria nobody, Project, yeah. I mean, yeah, everyone but, has an intention. Yeah, yes, because my intention, I didn't, when I got started in Alexandria, I didn't know anything about Alexandria. Nobody I knew knew anything about Alex, Ptolemaic Alexandria. And uh, remote viewers didn't know anything about Ptolemaic Alexandria. So we did not go in with any prior conceptions about what things were or where they should be. Uh-huh. So that's, and that's why I did it. I understood at that time, I already understood I'm not, Non-local consciousness, you have to, it, there are very subtle things which influence the outcome of non-local consciousness. Well, I fully understand. We, we did experiments, you know, in the parapsychology program that, of course, proved that, and it's in the literature. Yeah, I mean, numinosity, entropic process, and intention are three of the big things which influence uh, the kind of data you get. And I knew this, uh, and so uh, I was, A, the historians who wanted me to do this and who got me the funding to do it, uh, um, 
they didn't have any expectations or strong beliefs, and neither did I, and as I say, neither did the viewers. So I knew I was relatively clean on that, whereas had I gone to do something about the pyramids, for instance, I would have had to figure out a way to get through all the deeply and passionately believed things about the Great Pyramid, which are in actuality not correct. Right, I un- I understand that. However, the you know the Palace of Cleopatra, the Palace of Mark Antony, the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria, and even Ptolemy. Uh, what did you say? Um, Pompey's Pyramid. Pompey's, Pompey's Pillar. Pompey's Pillar. I mean, all of those were known to exist from the literature, correct? Uh, they were all known to exist in the literature, but everybody was agreed they didn't know where they were. Correct. So it would make a difference to you to be involved in a project where no one knows where something might be. Well, in, in the projects that I do, one of the requirements is nobody knows the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. Right. So I only do things, everybody agrees they don't know the answer to it, and I only do things where I can also get an electronic survey of them so that uh, I can demonstrate unequivocally that remote viewing found what normal electronic remote sensing could not find. I understand. Well, we'll talk. Okay. Well, it's great to meet you. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you. All right. If you'd like to call in the last few minutes of the show, uh, the number is 917-889-8802. And in uh, the last 10 minutes here, Stefan, is there anything you want to add before uh, before the end of the show? No, um, I was happy to do it. Um, very glad to, if it was interesting for people. And um, I just as I said, I make all my stuff freely available. You can go to my website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can see the movies. You can download the papers. Um, I spell it all out in great detail. You get the books, Opening to the Infinite, The Alexandria Project, Secret Vaults of Time. Everything is fully footnoted, and so you can find out where I learned about it. And I just, I believe in extremely meticulous research when you are dealing with non-local consciousness. And so I care about things which can be objectively verified. Now, can you give us a little preview of, you wrote a paper on uh, evidence-based end-of-life care that incorporates non-local consciousness. Can you uh, give us a little nutshell of that? Well, once you, accept, once you get the idea that conscious, there is continuity of consciousness, that is, your consciousness, this, what the religion calls the soul, what I would call the eternal self, once you get that the eternal self existed before you were born, that you are in fact a manifestation, a personality created by your eternal self, that you incarnate choosing your parents, your race, your sex, your economic background, everything, because it's all about, this is the realm of the will. And it's all about the choices you make and the things that you learn from those choices. The Indian 
idea of karma it, it arises from that. They get because they are dealing with, you know, if you look at, this is a whole other subject, but if you yeah. look at religion, what you realize is that all, that religion is about non-local consciousness, first of all. Second of all, all of the enduring religions begin because one individual has a non-local consciousness experience. Jesus goes to get baptized by John. He goes out into the desert and he meditates and awakens. Muhammad goes to the sacred cave of Hira where he has a non-local experience and awakens. Uh, the Buddha goes to an ashram where he's taught to meditate and he does so and he awakens. And you so, looked in the mirror and you saw and then you kind of had your awakening. Well, I mean, yes, in my own way, yes. And so what you come to understand is that what, well, let me put it this way. Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, was interviewed in 1931 by the Observer newspaper. Now, Planck did not give a lot of interviews. And they asked him, they said, you and Einstein are the most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? And I think they thought he was going to talk about molecules and atoms and things, or quantum, I don't know. But what he said was, which is, I think, exactly correct, he said, what I have learned from my research is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time, a complete refutation of the physicalist idea. And then in 1944, he gave a talk to the leading physicists of the world in which he told them the same thing. He said, I have spent my entire life studying the foundations of what we call reality. And what I have learned is that atoms and molecules don't exist. They are expressions of information. And that is my conviction. What I have come to after 60 years of doing this research is that we live in a, in a, in a reality of information created by intentioned consciousness. And that consciousness is outside of space-time, and that what remote viewers are doing is simply opening themselves to the information architecture in the non-local domain. And you can get any kind of information you like. The task, from a researcher's point of view, is to be very careful what you're asking and understanding what the variables that could influence the information you get, what they're doing. For instance, we know in remote viewing, it's easier to see Chartres Cathedral than it is a warehouse of the same size. Now, why is that? If the physical shape was the key to it. So why does that make a difference? And the answer is because Chartres Cathedral is far more numinous than a French warehouse. Because from the moment it was conceived of, before it was even built, it held a very highly emotionally charged uh, perspective for all the people that were involved. 
whereas you drive by a warehouse, nobody pays any attention. So if you're going to work with with non-local information and you're going to ask people to provide it, you need to know about the numinosity, the entropic process, their capacity to hold intention, all of those things that very, very few people talk about or even think about. Yeah. Well, then you have people like myself who uh, are loners. And I, you know, there was a time when I, I thought about approaching Ingo and company to form a sort of justice league. Cause like I said, I, uh, I was a boy going out of body and I saw the, the Superman cartoons came on in the sixties and I went, Oh my God, that's, that's my life path right there. I'm supposed to use this to help people. So I, you know, I have the Cape and the leotards when I go out and there's trouble, but I've never worked with anybody. So I don't have to deal with a lot of these factors that, that you do with your experiments. And uh, maybe we can talk more about that uh, next time. Uh, Richard will, will love uh, having you on the show again, because he'll, he can really get into the, the deep dive and, uh, um, you guys will have a lot of fun. Uh, I'm sure he's he's bummed that uh, he's in bed with his headache tonight because I know he wanted to be here. But uh, I want to thank you, Stefan, for coming on the show tonight and sharing your time and knowledge with us. Uh, I, I find your your experience and uh, all of your research to be quite fascinating, and it just falls in line with my own. Uh, so uh, with that, Barbara, are, are you, did you want to add anything before we, we sign off? Just thank you so, so much, Stephen, for your life's work. And uh, maybe we can work together. We'll see. Sure. Well, thank you both. Uh, I enjoyed it. I'm happy to do it. And uh, Jonathan, I encourage you, as I said, to continue your work, but be very meticulous in recording it because you want people to see it accept it and and take it seriously understood i will do that and with that uh, we're going to wrap up the show uh thank our listeners for joining us tonight uh, tomorrow night we're doing a, a moon show richard should be back and then next saturday russell targ will be back to talk about uh precognitive dreams which a lot of us have had and so you're listening to the other side of the night. Come, and until next time, remember, third star on the left and straight on till morning. Good night, everybody. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.